Packers Daily with Jason Mertides. And welcome to your Monday, April 27th edition of Flyers Daily. It feels like an eternity since we have watched a hockey game. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get some uh, news to that effect uh, that uh, things may be getting closer than we thought uh, this week. So we'll find out. Uh, player profiles continue. Jake Voracek, the subject of this profile, and joining us for this episode once again is Bill Peter. You, you read him on PhiladelphiaFlyers.com and, and HockeyBuzz as well. And, um, Bill, a lot of interesting uh, things have come out of the weekend, um, and, and I want to start here. We'll get to the player profile of Jake Voracek, but um, it actually doesn't involve the NHL, but it's interesting because as you and I have spoken about this and um, we kind of uh, believe that both the NHL and the NBA are likely in some sort of lockstep, seeing as they share buildings, they share the same uh, basic time of year where uh, they play their sports. And the NBA is going to allow certain teams in certain cities to open practice facilities as early as this Friday, May 1st. Um, were you surprised to see this news? I know Adrian Wojnarski, uh, Woj uh, tweeted about it. It's got some validation, um, but uh, I, I have to say it's pretty good news. <laughs> No, absolutely. It, it definitely caught me by surprise when I saw that today. Um, you know, when the the NBA and the NHL have been in close communication because they share so many buildings. So, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be some good news with the with the NHL players pretty soon, too. Yeah. And um, th- there's been some conversation and some reports that suggest um, that player or teams rather would like to get their players um back together around mid-May to start some informal skates uh, in preparation for what would be uh, a training camp of some sort. We're not sure if that is a, a 10-day camp or, I don't know, a three-week camp has been discussed. I mean, James Reimer, uh, goaltender for the Carolina Hurricanes, has even advocated for preseason games. Again, I don't think he's going to get it. But um, but that being said, uh, you got a lot of players coming back from Europe. So, Bill, if they come back from Europe and they want them back by May 15th or by the end of the month, they, they got to get back and re-quarantine, I would think. I would I would think so. I think that's going to be part of that process, too. And, um, you know, and also the, I mean, the availability of, because, uh, you know, as you and I were discussing before we went on the air, it's in, it's in the markets where it's, uh, you know, feasible to do so. So, uh, you know, it's not going it, to, you, you couldn't get all 31 teams back at whatever their home training rink is. So that, that's going to be something else to figure out as well as we as we move into this. So some areas of the country are harder hit than others, as we all know. So, you know, but it's uh, – and and also you know, players in, in some parts of Europe, the Swedish players, for example, um, the, the, ranks are, the ranks are open there. Players can train. So, you know, they're, they're, uh, it's not entirely a level, a level playing field as, as they're coming back, but they're going to try to level it as much as possible. So all those things – you know, have yet to be figured out, but hopefully we'll get some news here pretty soon. Uh, and Bill, let's talk about that. For a I know Michael Delzato's talked about that, the, about the Swedish players having an advantage over their counterparts. Now, they're in their home country. Brinks are available. Are those players supposed to just not go because people in other countries can't? I mean, I, I get it is an advantage, but I don't think it's one that you could restrict a player from from going to the rink to skate. No, no nor do I. You know, it's... Uh... Players, uh, a lot of players, you know, their their skating routine is it's fairly solitary anyway, at least in the beginning of it. So they might have a they might have a training partner or somebody they work with, but uh, you know, I, I mean, I and it's certainly you you can't restrict somebody's movement over you know overseas. Like I said, in Sweden, they don't have the they don't have the same uh, you know the, the same restrictions on social distancing and whatnot. I mean, people are expected to 
you know, act responsibly, but there, there's nothing to prevent somebody from, from going. So, you know, I, and I don't think it's realistic this far out into, uh, in the quarantine period to expect everybody to, you know, still be adhering if, if locally they don't have to. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing. It's actually not something that I really thought about till really all this broke today. Yeah. And then the other part of it is if teams can get on the ice in their select markets quicker, uh, you look, you know, you look at markets like Minnesota or, you know, Carolina, even Arizona, uh, and then the other places like Philadelphia and New York and that were maybe that's not a possibility. Uh, how much is of that is going to be an advantage for those teams to get back on the ice and have some informal workouts even before? I, I think that that is definitely that, that is a bit of a benefit. It, it depends also on what the time frame would be to begin, you know, actual training camps and, and get games in, because I do think that teams that are in areas where, you know, it's, it's not feasible right now to, to get players in the ice for informal workouts and start to train. I mean, it, that it, it's a game changer to be able to do that because that's part of players, normal off season routines anyway, to, to get ready for camp. And it's definitely, it's definitely a benefit if, you know, you can get your players in the ice and as opposed to the teams that can't, I mean, I think there, I think there is an advantage in those situations. And I do think they need to figure out, you know, what would be a sufficient amount of time, you know, for the teams that are not in that situation to be able to fairly get players in the camp and, and be able to be, you know, efficient in camp too. I, I don't, I don't think there's a magic number. I don't think there's a perfect system, but I do think they need to try to address it in, in some way, shape or form. And that certainly would be something, you know, that would affect the flyers because as you said, you know, the, the area, you know, even fly, even their training, of course, in, in South Jersey and Voorhees. I mean, New Jersey is one of the hardest hit states in the, in the country after only New York. So, you know, it's not feasible, I don't think, to get players back in, 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 in Jersey. So that's, uh, you know, that's something I think that, that the Flyers would want to see addressed, I, I would think. Yeah, here, the, the good news, and maybe I think one of the best news out of, a, you know, sometimes you look for bad news in a really bad situation. And, and this is one of those times. And maybe the best news in, in all of this is how the players and the league have worked together and communicated. Because uh, one of the news that also broke out of this weekend is that the NHL's, um, uh, the, the NHLPA and the league have uh, appointed, uh, I guess what they're calling it, um, a player, the NHL and NHLPA committee to discuss the format to return to play. I know Larry Brooks from uh, the New York Post is the guy who broke this story. Um, the players uh, from the PA side include John Tavares, Connor McDavid, Mark Shifley, Ron Hainsey, and James Van Riemsdyk, who is actually the Flyers player rep. They're part of the committee along with Gary Bettman, Bill Daly, Colin Campbell, um, Steve Petros, also representing the league, Don Fear, Matthew Schneider, uh, general counsel, Don Zavello, and a divisional rep, uh, and Steve Webb representing the Players Association. But the communication that the the players, the league, and all the uh, uh, requisite personnel have uh, have maintained and kind of gone through every process, part of this process, is maybe one of the good things to come out of this. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, there, there are going to be a lot of things to figure out, you know, off-season-wise and, and ongoing, even after this, you know, with the, with the uh, CBA. So, I mean, dialogue, you know, working closely here. I mean, it's a, you know, this is a different situation, obviously, than a, than a CBA negotiation because, you know, they're, they're not two competing sides here. These, it's, it's in both of their best interests to figure out something here. So, you know, I don't know how much it carries over, but I definitely think that, that working together here 
reopen some communication lines, hopefully starts to rebuild some trust because those CBA negotiations have, and they've been so contentious over the years. So I, I think that, uh, you know, constructive dialogue and working directly together, you know, it's like, it can't be a bad thing. Yeah. And when uh, Larry Brooks also uh, reported that they have conducted a pair of conference calls over the past three days with regularly scheduled meetings um, to follow. And they've had medical advisors on the, from both uh, the league and uh, the PA have been included on these calls. So when appropriate, they're, they're bringing in the medical professionals and um, all in advance of uh, trying to figure out exactly when and where they can strike and try and get this, this game back on the ice. Um, the, the, the meetings so far have not moved to specific plans or locations, uh, according to the Post, but rather big picture questions in need of answers before a plan is put in place. Maybe one of those is still debating the viability uh, of an NHL draft after uh, uh, in June, as opposed to waiting after till the Stanley Cup is handed out. Um, you know, G- Gary Bettman last week, Bill, said that that was a bit of a trial balloon. Uh, but I heard some reporting this weekend basically saying that when Gary's got something in his head, uh, Gary can probably figure out a way to do it. Um, and based on maybe how he saw the NFL draft go this past weekend and the amount of viewers they got, this might be something that he pushes a little harder than we thought. Yeah, I mean, uh, on, on the last podcast I did with you, we were talking about some of the questions that arise. And since then, I've heard, OK, well, maybe you just freeze everything at the 68 game mark you know, for purposes of, of the draft. Um, that doesn't that doesn't address the issue of conditional picks, um, but that that does that would at least sort out some of the front end things in terms of okay how do you weight the lottery how do you weight the second half of the round where based on how far teams go I mean you know that's uh, that is a possibility um, and actually if they you know the sooner they go back um, the more likely they would be to be able to finish the regular season. Um, because otherwise you could end up in you know a very strange situation because okay if you have teams that would be just outside the playoffs now um and so you roll back to 68 games and they're they would be a lottery team but that team were to go on a run in the postseason say they you know so they get to a conference final could could they be a conference finalist where they should be picking in the final four of the round and yet still be a lottery team I mean it's uh, you know because of because of the 68 game rollback and holding it beforehand. I mean, conceivably something like that could happen, but I mean, I, I think it would just be a, you know, a one year situation. So it's um, to me, I mean, to me, it's really a, an intriguing thing. And, you know, I, I think that there, there are other issues just in terms of readiness for the draft without a combine, without all the rest of that. But I mean, you know, the people that I've spoken with said, you know, Hey, listen, we, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat here. We've all been dealt the same hand and, you know, we're we're ready to go whenever we have to. Yeah, and the, boy, that would put a lot of strain on uh, the, the staffs uh, of these teams, general managers, assistant GMs, scouts, because uh, if something like that were to happen in early June, you're about a month away from that, five weeks away. And not only that, Bill, but you're not getting the opportunity to see it. You get eyes on a lot of these guys for meetings and those kind of things. It, it, it's it's like going into a draft with, with one eye open and the other one slam shut on you. It'd be a yeah. tough situation. Sure, especially, uh, you know, especially on the medical information side, you know, I mean, well, <laughs> unless, of course, you're the Arizona Coyotes, although I think they're going to repeat that again, right? Well, oh boy, they but, have a decided advantage. They brought in so many players. Yeah, but, um, you know, but that's a, that's a big thing for teams, the, the medical information side of it. Chuck Fletcher said it as well. You know, you, the player interviews could be done. You, you could set that up in some kind of, uh, you know, Zoom kind of meeting and, and players talking one team from one stretch of time and another, another. 
that can be worked at technologically. Um, the uh, the physical testing side, although you know, although they use it in terms of okay, you know, how do we set a fitness plan for this player over once once a player would be you know theoretically drafted? Um, that's actually in some ways the less important part um, because the players will develop physically over a number of years. But the the, the player interview and the uh, the medical information are huge for teams. And I mean, that's, that is, you know, that, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Um, and also the lack of a stretch drive in a playoff in, in a lot of these leagues where they're being scouted from, you know, you see players jump up in the rankings sometimes. So players are kind of a little bit frozen where they, you know, where they were in the middle of March, but that's, again, everybody's, everybody's working from that, from that same uh, starting point. So, you know, it's it, it's not going to be an ideal situation, but I mean, if it, if it's in June, they're just going to have to you know, have to deal with it and work around it. Bill, do you get the sense that? Um, and I know the medical experts and and what's going on with the pandemic pandemic will ultimately decide. But it, boy, it does. It really feels like there's a lot of momentum to concluding this 2019-20 season, doesn't it? It does. Um, you know, over the last week, as things have been developing at first it was just some rumblings and now now it really does feel like there is some real momentum to uh getting teams in and and working at the logistics of getting this done you know i was really i was kind of on the fence in terms of an optimism level over is you know is this going to get done um i i think i think with each passing day i i feel more and more optimistic that they will be able to be able to finish the season and again how how the, all those specifics will work out, I guess we'll, we'll see how they work out. But I am pretty optimistic there'll be hockey of some sort. And I, and I think that, it, you know, as long as we're continuing this direction, I think the sense of optimism will only continue to grow. Yeah, see, and that's, a, you know, I think in the beginning I was just optimistic because I just wanted to be optimistic because I, I, I want to watch the game. <laughs> so it was almost convincing myself. But now it's less me convincing myself. And and I think one of the big parts of it, for me at least, is that um, they're, they've been so uh, – free with the information they've been so transparent about their plans and reporting has been not only sourced reporting but on the record you know those kind of things so that that i feel the momentum in that regard as well um bill you wrote a piece um and i really enjoyed it um and it's exactly what the doctor ordered today uh, on a sunday it was raining all day i'm going i need some good hockey to dive into today and you wrote a piece uh on nhl.com and philadelphiaflyers.com inside the numbers about the power play adjustments for the flyers and it, it's it got the breakdown month to month of uh, the Flyers' percentage and power play, and not only that, combined special teams. Um, first of all, what made you decide to, to dig into this project? Because I think it's a smart thing to dig into because, it's to me, it's one of the biggest catalysts for the improvement of the club this year. Yeah, both both ends of special teams, and we're gonna um, maybe in another week we'll, we'll we'll have one on the on the penalty killing side, uh, just because it it has been such a big part of the Flyers' turnaround, and and one thing that. Uh, you know, we've discussed doing Joe Seville uh, of the Flyers and I have discussed doing uh, when there's been an opportunity to do so. Looking at elements of the team systems and and putting some video to it. Here are some examples of it, um, which is which is the barely the second the second piece of the article. Just beyond looking at the statistics, is okay. Here here are some examples of tweaks that they made on the power play during the course of the year. Um, you know, for example, um, they were going with a double net front look for a while, and that, that had that. That had some fruit to it. Um, you know, the Flyers got a couple power play goals that way, um, moving Claude Giroux back to the left side, but also dropping them down to the goal line uh, once they would get possession. That that was that's part of you know that's part of the reason why 
recently, you know, before the uh, before the pause, that the power play had had the familiar look to it, but it had some other wrinkles that they could throw at the other teams. So that that's the other piece of it is describing okay, what were the what were the tweaks and the adjustments during the season, and then demonstrating that with video. Um, those things take obviously a, a lot of time to put together, and when you have the you have the uh, stretch of practices and games, there's, there's not necessarily as much time to do these deep dive X and O kind of pieces. So, you know, if, if people like it, we'll do more of them. Uh, I thought maybe a, maybe a good one would be looking at the, the flyers for checking systems, for example. Um, and uh, you know, that's uh, so that was really kind of the idea behind it. And I, I hope people do enjoy it because I have fun putting that kind of thing together. Yeah. And you're right. And look, and I think one of the reasons um, why the power play has been more successful year to year um, you've had a little bit of personnel change, um, and, and not all of it's been upgrades. I mean, look, Shane Gostisbehere, when when he was playing his best, was was a great, you know, uh, you know, captain of that power play as the high point man. Uh, that hasn't been the case this year. But to me, Bill, just in watching it, is the variance in which they attack. And you allude to it in your article. And you just talked about it. Uh, you know, having Drew on the left side, you had him on the right side, then you move him back to the left, but you move him down lower, and you open up, uh, you know, little triangle plays down in. in in tight to the net or you know you're not always attacking from the same spot uh with predictability that variance to me has been something that uh teams have a hard time kind of preparing for that because it gives you a lot of options it, it absolutely does you know the part of the reason why the changes were made and it happened in the second half of last year too because the power play numbers were really poor they were around 16 percent around the middle of the season and it was it was that familiar group of players and teams that just figured it out and it, it wasn't working anymore. And it was there was a lot of pre- predictability about it. I mean, there you know there were three or four puck rotations that you knew that they were looking for each and every time. And for a number of years, it worked. Um, you need each each particular part of it to be clicking, though. You know, for example, you know before Wayne Simmons was moved off the top power play unit and, and then traded. I mean, Simmons was not the same player he was anymore. Um, getting funneling the puck down to Simmons net front wasn't producing the same results. And, and uh, ghost is having, you know, he hasn't had the best year this year. He had the best year last year, either um, lost confidence in his shot for, you know, whatever reason. And so the, you know, those, those two, those two plays weren't working. The, the cross ice feeds between um, Giroux and, and Voracek, um, you know, that was, that was still a big part of the bread and butter of the team. But um, you know, you take, take away the middle and a lot of that, you know, a lot of that was not working and um, flyers were giving up a lot of shorthanded goals a year ago. So a lot of things had to change. And um, they spent half a season this year really figuring out what did and did not work. Um, you know, they, they kept players on their natural side for a significant period of time. That was actually making regularly moving guys back to their to their offside really was one of the latter changes that, that were made. And there, even even before that was done, there were there were other tweaks that were made that there worked. Uh, with some effectiveness. Um, one of the things that we mentioned in the articles, remember early in the season, of course, this was before um, Oscar Lindblom's cancer diagnosis, and, and he was on a line with Sean Couturier and Travis Konechny. They were keeping them together as a line on, on the power play, and they were having mm-hmm. some success too. Um, and so, you know, we looked at that. We looked at all the, you know, many different things that were tried this year, again, with varying degrees of success. So it, uh, you know, it, it was a process. And um, one of the, one of the, uh, really positive things that had happened is that uh, the Flyers were able to throw, as you said, different looks, be able to work those little triangular passing plays, attack the net directly, you know, and they, other teams had to play them honestly. You, you couldn't, you couldn't collapse down low. You couldn't, uh, you know, 
you knew, you didn't know that every shot was going to come from up high trying to get screens in front or, or whatever, you know, or whatever. But it, it's, um, you know, it, it's something where uh, 20%, you know, is, uh, it, it's okay. And the Flyers are middle of the pack, 16th on the power play. But that was that was up from near the bottom a year ago. And it, it's a nice jump upwards. So, um, you know, that, that moved in the right direction. And the penalty kill has seriously moved in the right direction. If you look league-wide, um, at the number of teams that are 20% or better on the power play and also 80% or better on the PK. Flyers are one of just six teams that can say that this year, and that's yeah. a big, big jump. Yeah, that's just social, te- you know, special teams improving across the board, and 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 that oftentimes, if you're going to improve to that degree, it ends up in the win column. It really does. And, you know, it's, it's interesting watching the power play now, too, because you have that variance and when you put that much stuff on film, it does change the way an opponent will defend you. And all of a sudden, those seam passes across the slot line from Giroud to Voracek, and you've seen this on numerous occasions, really sharp angle one-time shots on those seam passes um, from a guy like Voracek or Giroud and, and, and other players, JVR as well, um, uh, getting goals that way. And then the other part of it, it, it the goaltenders adjust too. That net front move that Wayne Simmons used to do, a goaltender just gets down now, puts his paddle down, and makes himself as big as he can. And it, you, you can't put the puck through a goaltender. <laughs> you got to you got to have to move the puck and get the goalie moving to have the most success possible. Um, but Bill, that leads us right to our player profile, which is perfect. You did the article on a perfect day because one of the uh, power play players for the Flyers is Jake Voracek. Um, he's been with the team for a number of years now, um, and once again, um, Jake Voracek maybe didn't have the greatest start to the season. Was moved around a lot, and that was maybe part of Elaine Vino's kind of seeing who should play with who to play the way I want them to play. Uh, but that being said, it clicked for him at some point. It clicked for him in the neutral zone in particular, uh, not to mention the offensive zone. But I, I think he's been a, a 200 foot player, a better 200 foot player than in his entire career. Oh, I agree. I think that's been. One of the really, you know, um, unsung things this season is the level of buy-in that they've gotten from the, the followers. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about players skating shorter shifts, um, and Giroux was the, the leader in that. I mean, he's significantly about six seconds per shift less, which really, you know, makes a player a lot fresher as the game goes on. But uh, but also because of the demands of playing 200 feet and you can't cheat up high and you know and and. Uh, a lot of the backdoor goals the Flyers were giving up really aren't happening this year. You know, it's good. It helps the goalies. It helps the team as a whole. And, you know, early this season, I I, I don't think uh, Jake necessarily got up to the best start, particularly offensively. But I think as the, as the season has gone along, he's had a he's had a very, very strong season, you know, I think. And it's not just not just his numbers this year. Um, you know, I, I had to go back to really before he was moved up in the lineup the year that the Yager was here. It was Jake's first year here, and um, Voracek was playing a lot on the third line with well, John Couturier was a rookie at that time, and Matt Reed was on the other side. They had a long running line, and that year I thought I thought Jake had a good two way two good two way year, um, and I think this is his best one since then. But he's a more mature player now and a more consistent player, and the you know the the offense has come along too as as things uh, have uh, have rolled along during the season. So I uh, you know I I'm personally happy with the seasons season that he's had yeah and i look at his game and his ice time is uh 1703 last year for instance it was 1840 uh the, the two years prior over 19 minutes a game but to your point it's it's you also have a team with more depth now than you've had the past couple of years so uh, you can do that rolling of the four lines a bit more uh but when i look at his game this year in particular bill the big thing for me 
is it, I, I still see the creativity of the player offensively, uh, but not quite as risky, if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. And uh, a lot of those were the, you know, one of the areas where, where Jake would sometimes get in trouble is you have that no pass zone, you know, as you're near, near the blue line. Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not a good place to try to make plays because you lose the puck all of a sudden you're looking at an odd man rush coming the other way. Um, particularly if you, particularly if you've overstayed a shift and you're trying to bring the puck up ice, you lose possession. Now you can't even, you can't get back. And, um, you know, that, uh, and K- Travis Konechny has knocked a lot of that out of his game, you know, as well. I mean, a, a lot of players have, there, there are a lot of sacrifices in buying into the system that, you know, that, uh, is, is demanded of all players on the team. It's, you know, part of what they call playing the right way. It's all, all rolled into that. Right. So, um, and the other thing too, is the, the players see is that just because you skate shorter shifts and maybe have less total ice time, you're skating the same number of shifts. The number of shifts ha- hasn't changed or the same. So, you know, players realize, okay, I'm, I'm fresher later in the game. I'm still out on the ice just as often as I have been. And, uh, that, that to me is, uh, I think that if you talk to players, you know, the number of shifts you have is just as important, if not more so than the total time on ice at the end of the game. So that's, uh, that's been a change. And just because, you know, because you're able to, to roll four different lines and you don't have to shorten the bench, then uh, some of those longer shifts, some of those, those harder shifts get, you spread the weight out a little bit too. So that's uh, part of why the Flyers have been such a good third period team. And, and I think that uh, Jake has been one of the Flyers' best players in those third period situations where you got to put a game away or you're you're in a tied situation. And some you know, and there's an opportunity to make a play. You know, I, I think that um, those don't always show up in the, the overall point totals, but I, I really do. I think that this year, uh, his ability to bring the puck up the ice, protect the puck, um, dish to a teammate, or, or attack the net himself. I mean, I, I think that. Um, Situationally, I think this has been again. I think it's been a strong year for him. And he, he's played a lot of games in the NHL. Nine hundred fifteen games already. Six hundred and seventy-four as a Flyer. Um, just turned thirty before the season. Still has four years after this on his deal. Um, he, he doesn't look like to me like the the age number is affecting his ability to skate. And he's a good skater and his ability to protect the puck. And and that's good news for Flyer fans as well. That you know now. 30, 30 years of age and 256 days at the airing of this podcast, um, he is, uh, you know, not losing a step in his skating. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, uh, you know, that's eventually an adjustment players have to make. But as you said, I mean, he, he keeps up with the play just fine. He Particularly, you know, Jake, Jake picks his spots. I think he's, um, you know, I think he's a more savvy player than some people give him credit for. You can't play that way every shift of every game. When Jake needs that extra gear, I, I think it's still there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And, and when he gets that hell bent to, you know, around the outside and control the game with his skating and protecting that puck, it's uh, it's his biggest asset. And he does it at key points. Uh, all said and done on the season so far, uh, played in all sixty nine games, twelve goals, forty four assists, fifty six points. But the big difference is he was a minus sixteen last year. He's a plus fourteen. I don't like sight and plus minus, um, because I don't think it's always a, a stat that is very indicative of, of everything. But when you see a, a, that much of a difference, a, a 40 point spread between the two to me or 30 points, it's pretty big. Uh, the other thing too, Bill about Jake Voracek is boys. He's adorable. He, he does not miss many games ever. And knock on wood, you know, he just doesn't, he, he played, uh, he's played all 82 
four times for the Flyers. He's played 78. He played all 48 in the, in the shortened season back in 2012-11, 73 in the 15-16 season, 78 last year, and he's played in all 69 this year. Answering the yeah. bell, you know? Absolutely. And last year he had that, that short suspension too, so that cost him a couple games. So. Good, great point. Yeah, it wasn't even injury-related in that regard. Uh, it, great stuff on uh, Jake Voracek again uh, with the Flyers now for not – this is his ninth season as a Philadelphia Flyer. He's got some tenure, that's for sure. Uh, still not the most. Yeah, he's, he's the Flyers' all-time leading European-born scorer too. So. Oh, <laughs> a little, all right. Little feathered his cap there. Yeah, there you go. And uh, we hope that Jake Voracek. Do you know? Did he go back to uh, the Czech Republic and Clad now? You know what? I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't heard. So uh, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be surprised if, if he went back. Jake tends to go back during the summer times. But um, yeah, the only players I'm I'm positive that did go back. I know that Michael Raffle went to Austria. I know that uh, Robert Haig went back to Sweden. Um, so hopefully, uh, Hager's getting rid of, doing some skating over there <laughs> and the Flyers will be one of those teams and get a little advantage out of that, I guess. <laughs> also, yeah, and the, uh, yeah, we talked about, uh, we talked about Sandine, you know, if he does indeed sign with the Flyers, he's, uh, he and, he and Hag trained together during the off season. So maybe they've been training together. Oh yeah. They'll be both. Oh, well, Hager will be ready to go. And, uh, we'll see if this momentum keeps up this week from, uh, the NHL and the NHL PA. We'll keep our ear to the ground on that. Everybody, thanks for listening to your Monday edition, uh, April 27th edition of Flyers Daily. Another one coming up on Wednesday. That would be the player profile of Phil Myers. And I'm excited to do that one as well because uh, he's a guy that's really coming into his own and is a great skater and uh, has really legitimized himself as a, as a force, top four D-man for the Flyers. Uh, pairing up uh, on that blue line with Travis Sanheim and two guys can absolutely fly out there. So we'll bring that to you on Wednesday. In the meantime, everybody stay healthy and thanks for listening.